Today's scripture reading comes from Romans 8, 14 to 17. For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons, by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God, and if children, then heirs heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks, Deborah, for reading God's word to us. And hi again, New Hope. Great to see all of you. Now, just like I did last week, what I'm going to do today is read to you from the Apostles' Creed. And I invite you to, to listen and then later on, We're going to read this creed together as we come and take the Lord's Supper. I believe in God the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth. I believe in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit and born of the Virgin Mary. He suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. Third day, he rose again from the dead. He ascended to heaven and is seated at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. From there, he will come to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. Amen. The Apostles' Creed We started looking at it last week, and I provided some background on what it is and and how it came into existence and and how the church over the centuries has used this document that that is is over uh, 1,500. It's really closer to to 2,000 years old almost, but between 1,500 and 2,000 years old. So if you want to learn more about it, I can can suggest some resources to you. You can go back and listen to a message from last week for a little bit more on what the Apostles' Creed is. What I'd like to share with you today as we get into this is is simply this. this. The the Apostles' Creed is a countercultural document. Really, it's more than countercultural. It's subversive. When people sincerely declare these words together, they are actively rejecting the predominant narratives of their day. What what I mean is that when we read this document together, we are denouncing the predominant narratives that we're called to live by in our culture, in our day. For instance, we are renouncing the narrative of materialism that tells us that more money and more stuff will lead to more peace, more happiness. We reject that when we read this creed together. We're denouncing the narrative of hopelessness that tells us that the world is so lost that all is lost. It's unsavable. It's just a mess. And nothing's ever going to change that. We denounce the narrative of materialism, of hopelessness. We denounce every other false narrative too. And when we read this document together, we're also declaring our trust in the story that God is writing, the story that begins with creation and ends not with hopelessness, but with the resurrection and life eternal. 
Whenever we read the Apostles' Creed together, we're also denouncing the many gods, quote-unquote, little g gods, that vie for our allegiance in this world. And we declare allegiance to the God who reveals Himself in Scripture. Christians, we sometimes focus on the huge divide that exists between those who say, I believe in God, and those who say, I don't believe in any God. We emphasize sometimes that distinction, that divide between believers in God generally, theists we might call them, and atheists. Those don't believe in God at all. And certainly that divide is a significant one. But the Bible tells us that the greatest divide, really, is between those who believe in the Christian God presented to us in Scripture and those who believe in other, little g, quote-unquote gods, false gods, idols, the Bible calls them. Because the fact is that whether we're atheists or not, we all believe in some God. We all worship some God. And I mean God in a, in a general, in a broad sense. What I mean is that we all look to something to save us. We all look to, to something to make us feel better, to satisfy us, even if it's just temporarily. We give our lives meaning. It could be any number of things. It could be other people that we look to to do that. It could be a significant other. It could be our children that we look to for satisfaction. We look to for the approval we want. We look to to save us in some way. Could be a career that we look to, or the, or the money or the status that a, that a career brings to us. Could be success in some form, comfort, uh, a certain body that we desire, and we all believe and we worship that thing, whatever it is. It's some kind of god. Now, when the Apostles' Creed was written, many people in that day worshipped. Imaginary gods with names like Zeus and Aphrodite and Athena. But they also worshipped more familiar gods like influence and status and comfort and power and money. And while Zeus and Aphrodite and Athena, they, they've all been relegated to like the world of mythology now, right? But those other gods, <laughs> they're still vying. They're still competing for our worship. And so it's in the face of that reality that the Bible makes this claim. There is one God, the Father Almighty, His Son, Jesus Christ, the Holy Spirit. I want to read to you from 1 Corinthians 8, 5, and 6. This is the claim that the Bible makes in the face of all the little g gods that fill the world. 1 Corinthians 8, verse 5 says, For although there may be called gods, there may be so-called gods in heaven or on earth, as indeed there are many quote-unquote gods and many quote-unquote lords, yet for us, for us, there is one God the Father, from whom are all things and for whom we exist, and one Lord, Jesus Christ, through whom are all things and through whom we exist. The primary focus of the Apostles' Creed is to lay out who is this one God? Who is this one, capital G, real God amongst all the little g, false gods? First of all, what we find out is that he is one God in three persons. 
That's, that's how the creed presents them. That's why the creed, if you look at it closely, it breaks up into three parts with these three kind of headlines. I believe in God the Father. I believe in Jesus Christ the Son. I believe in the Holy Spirit with other points underneath each of those. You see, there's three distinct persons in one God. And that's super confusing for all of us. I thought that once I became a Christian, I thought eventually I'll get this. I won't be confused by this anymore. Once I'm a Christian for a while, I'm still confused by it today. Because it contradicts everything we think we know about the world. I mean, look, we look at each other. You count how many humans are in this room? That's how many persons are in this room. Because for each human, there's one person, but not with God. With God, we have one God equals three persons. It blows our mind. The creed doesn't explain how one God can be three persons, but it does state it clearly. And then it tells us something about each person of that trinity. And so today, we need to think about that first line, and just that first line, I believe in God the Father Almighty. I believe in God the Father Almighty. What does it mean that God is Father? Father is a relational word, isn't it? It specifies a particular kind of relationship. If you are a father here today, it's because you're a father to someone. You can't be a father all by yourself, right? You must be a father to someone. And in the case of God, he has always been the father of the son. He has been always the eternal father of of the eternal son. So when we try to understand what it means that God is father, or what does it mean that God's my father, we don't start with us. Really what we need to start is by understanding that he is the eternal father. That is, he was the father long before we came into existence. He didn't need to bring us to, into existence to be a father. He has always been the father of Jesus, the beloved son, long before Jesus was born in Bethlehem. Jesus was the Son of God before he ever became the Son of Mary. You know, in, in his first and his very last recorded words, before his resurrection, Jesus calls God his Father. Isn't that interesting? When he was 12 years old, Mary and Joseph found him in the temple. What did he say? He said, why were you looking for me? Didn't you know that I must be in my father's house? And then 20 or 21 years later, as he was taking his last breaths, and Mary stood there watching him, he called out with a loud voice, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And throughout his whole life, he continued to address God as his father, Abba, Father. And that angered people. It angered religious people in particular. And what we see is that this wasn't just a claim that Jesus made, and this is why people got mad at him, because he claimed that God was his Father. But it wasn't just a claim that was made by him, it was a claim that was made by God as well. Look at Matthew chapter 3, verse 17, this awesome scene, where one of the places in the Scriptures where we see the triune uh, nature of God. We see God in the Trinity here. God the Father is in the scene. God the Son is in the scene. And God, the Holy Spirit is in this scene, all in one place at the same time. It says, and when Jesus was baptized, immediately he went up from the water, and behold, the heavens were opened to him, and he saw the Spirit of God 
descending like a dove and coming to rest on him. And behold, a voice from heaven, the voice of the Father, saying, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. Here's why it's worth taking time to see all of this, because Jesus relates to God as his Father. And then, once we get a sense of how that works, then we can start to get a sense of what it means that he incredibly, unfathomably, he invites us into that relationship. To share the same relationship with the Father that he shares. So that after Jesus Christ's resurrection, he tells Mary Magdalene, he says, go tell my disciples, I am ascending to my Father and your Father. He taught his disciples to pray, our Father in heaven. You see, we we get to stand alongside Jesus and we get to address God in the same way that he does. If that seems normal to you, or you feel entitled to that somehow, and I think you're missing the profundity of it, the eternal Son of God has welcomed us into that relationship and said, "The, the, the intimacy that I have with my Father, the love that we share between us, The openness, the commitment, the presence that we have in each other's lives, I'm inviting you, my disciples, to enjoy all of that eternally. And while you're here on earth, you're going to experience that, but sometimes you're going to doubt that it's a reality, but one day, the full beauty and weight of it is going to rest on you perfectly. Jesus invites us into his relationship with his Father. We become God's children. And that happens, of course, according to the Bible, by believing in the Son. By believing in the Son, not doing something for the Son, to ingratiate ourselves to the Son, not by impressing the Son, but by simply believing in the Son, he says, that's all I'm asking for. That's all you need to come into this family and be a child to my Father, just like I am. John 1.12 says, but to all who did receive him, that is to all who did receive Jesus, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. A new relationship, a new identity, Children of God. So, New Hope, when, when we confess that God is Father, it's not just a theological idea. It's, it's, it's the defining relationship of our lives. The Bible gives us two different metaphors to help us understand what happens in order for us to become children of God. It gives us kind of two angles from which to look at what it means to become a child of God. The one metaphor is the metaphor of being born into his family or born again into his family. And the other one is a metaphor of being adopted into his family. They're both true, and yet they both shed light on certain different aspects of what it means to come into the family of God. So, for instance, 1 John 5, 1 says, Everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God. God. Theologians call that regeneration. 
It's a, it's a second birth. We, we emerge from spiritual death into spiritual life. We are born again. Jesus called it that. And it's not... And it's God who regenerates us, of course. We don't give birth to ourselves. None of us can give birth to ourselves, physically or spiritually. God generates us, gives us new birth. And then when we, when we confess that and we get baptized, it's an outward sign of that inward spiritual reality. Do you ever think about that? When you see someone emerging from the water, when you, if you were baptized by immersion, as you exited that water and you came out it's a picture the sign that you were born again into the family of God and then there's that, fam- that, that metaphor of adoption through faith in Jesus we are welcomed into God's family from the outside from the outside so that if you have believed in Jesus your place in God's family is secure Your place in God's family is not provisional, it's not probationary, it is permanent. And it's not just on paper either, it's not just on a technicality. He has given you his spirit to live in you, to remind you that you now belong to him. And that finally brings us to the passage that Deborah read for us at the outset, Romans 8, verse 14 to 17. Romans 8, verse 14 says this, For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. Sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons, by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children than heirs, heirs of God, and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. The Apostle Paul is describing how faith in Christ changes everything, how faith in Christ transforms our relationship to God, and it it transforms the way that we live as well. And the the fundamental change that he's focusing on right here, it's this. You are now sons of God if you have believed in Jesus. He is now your father. Now, I know that many of us, all of us perhaps, wrestle with figuring out what does it mean exactly practically in my life to know that I am a child of God. But it's especially hard for some of you if you've had problematic relationships with your father. Maybe there was, maybe he was distant, maybe he was abusive, maybe he was dishonest or thoughtless. Whatever difficulties you had in your relationship with your father, it's very easy to then map all of that on to this new relationship that you have to God the Father. Or some of us maybe are dads, and we're very aware of our own failures as fathers. We, we grieve over our failures as fathers. And for us, we too can start to to map some of our failures and our shortcomings over on God as if he's the same kind of father that we are. Demanding and short-tempered or sarcastic, selfish. 
And so God goes to great lengths to show us what kind of father he is because he knows we're bound to get it confused because we've all had dads and some of us are dads. And so he tells us what kind of father he is. In this passage in Romans 8, there's a little bit in here about what kind of father he is. There's a little bit in here for us about the implications for us of what it means to now be a child of God. I'm going to give you some of those implications. Here's the first one. If you are a child, if you are a, if you are a child of God through faith in Jesus, you're no longer a slave controlled by fear. Slaves in ancient Rome had every reason to fear those who enslaved them because the master, the enslaver, could do anything they wanted to the slave. And the slave was valuable to the master because they were useful to the master. But once the usefulness of the slave expired, his value expired too. The slave was generally not loved or delighted in or cherished. No. So he lived in fear. Now, of course, it's true that we are called to fear God. Even as his children, we're called to, to fear him. But we're, fear, we're free to, to fear God without being afraid of him, if that makes any sense. It's a healthy kind of fear that we're called to have towards God. Not the kind of fear that cowers from him or hides from him. It's a healthy fear. If you grew up in the 1980s, tell me if you remember uh, an ad that used to be on TV um, it, was, it was an ad that would encourage little kids to not mess around with, with medicine that they find in their house. And, the, and, and, and there were these little, these little puppets that were shaped like, like pills, and they would sing this song. They would sing, this is serious. We could make you delirious. You should have a healthy fear of us. We're not candy. Am I the only one who remembers that? Because <laughs> if you grew up in the New York area in the 80s, you better remember that. That commercial may have saved our lives at times. But the reason I remember is because it talks about this healthy fear. They're not saying, look, the little pills, they're little puppets, and they're saying, you know, we're, we're good. We're helpful. You need us around the house, but don't mess with us. We're not to be trifled with. This is serious, because if you abuse or you misuse, you may die. It's a healthy fear that sees the good but respects the power. I believe this is something, something of the kind of way that we are called to interact with God, to see his power, to see his goodness, and also to know he's not to be trifled with. I was watching a, an interview recently with, uh, with the actor Denzel Washington, who recently uh, starred as... The, the Scottish King Macbeth in this film version of the Shakespearean tragedy. And um, he's being interviewed, and uh, there's this old superstition, I'm told, in the, the theater world that you're never supposed to say the name of Macbeth in a theater. It's bad luck. And so the interviewer is asking Denzel about the movie he was in, but there's film, they're doing this interview in a theater, right? So the interviewer is asking him, but he seems to be avoiding the name of the, 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 the title of the movie, Macbeth. And so, and so he says, he asks Denzel, he says, are, are you afraid to say this word? And Denzel Washington says, no, I'm a, I'm a God-fearing man, he said. I don't play that. He says, I'm not, I'm not afraid of superstitions and ghosts. And something about the way he said it struck me. I'm a God-fearing man, he says, as only Denzel Washington could say it. 
And what that meant for him is this fear of God, this healthy fear of God, cast out fear of stupid things like ghosts and superstitions. And it it reminded me that a healthy fear of God casts out the fear of everything else. Yes, God is to be feared. He's to be revered, honored, respected. And yet, as his children, we're told that we can boldly come before him, boldly hold him to his promises, boldly worship him, confident in his tender goodness toward us. That's one implication of being a child of God. You are no longer a slave controlled by fear. Here's another one. You're not an orphan. That means you're not alone. You have a protector. You have a provider. Jesus told us to pray, knowing that if we who are evil know how to give good gifts to our children, how much more will our Father who in heaven give good things to those who ask him? Here's another implication. You can experience intimacy with God. and In, 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 in fact, you are invited experience intimacy with God. Verse 15 of Romans 8, we're told we can call him Abba Father. Abba Father. That's Jesus' word for God, by the way. Look at what the old Welsh preacher Martin Lloyd-Jones says. He says, a child does not always address his father as father. He uses terms such as papa or dad. That is the kind of meaning represented by the word Abba. It was a word lisped by a little child. A little child has confidence. He does not analyze it. He knows that Abba is his father. Grown-ups may be standing back at a distance, being very formal with someone, some great person, but the little child rushes right in and holds on to his father's legs. He has a right that no one else has. I wonder if any of you have ever seen this, this photograph on this next slide here. This was taken in 1963. Um, a photographer for Look Magazine was in the White House, was actually in the Oval Office with John F. Kennedy. And uh, John F. Kennedy was the dad of a little boy named John F. Kennedy Jr., and, and during this photo shoot, the little kid busts into the Oval Office, and the photographer keeps shooting, keeps shooting pictures. And the president doesn't shoo the boy away. He doesn't kick little John Jr. out. Instead, he lets him dive under the table and play with the door at the front of that desk. To capture something of our relationship with the father the kind of access. Like Martin Lloyd-Jones says, he had a right to go in there that you and I don't have to walk into that office. He had a boldness that we probably could not get up the courage to have. And my favorite part of this picture is the smile on the president's face, kind of knowingly smiling, pretending like he's going about his work, knowing that his little kid is under the table messing around. This speaks in some small way to the intimacy that we're welcomed into with the Father. The liberty of the children of God, the Bible calls it. 
the freedom to interact with God like this. Just as the Father said of Jesus, this is my beloved Son in whom I'm well pleased, now he says that of you. If you are in Jesus Christ by faith, you are his beloved Son or daughter in whom he is well pleased. Here's another implication. The Holy Spirit lives in you to assure you that you are now a child of the Father. And we're going to talk more about that in depth in weeks ahead. You know, just, just about just a few verses earlier, the Apostle Paul calls the Holy Spirit the Spirit of Christ. So think about it in a sense. When, when Jesus is calling us into his relationship with the Father, he's saying, you now get to have the same relationship with my Father that I have, and I'm giving you my Spirit, the Spirit of Christ, to live in you to help you know how to relate to my Father as your Father. Here's another implication of being a child of God. You've got an inheritance. You've got an inheritance, verse 17 tells us. If you are in Christ, then everything that belongs to Jesus also belongs to you. Every child of God is an heir, not a junior heir, a co-heir with Jesus. And, and, and what is it that we're going to inherit exactly? Well, 1 Corinthians 2.9 says that eye has not seen nor ear heard nor the heart of man imagined what God has prepared for those who love him. We can't even begin to imagine it, but we do know this. We know that we've got a new body and a redeemed, renewed existence ahead of us in a new heavens and a new earth where righteousness dwells. We know that we will see God in Christ face to face, that we will experience the fullness of what it means to have the glorious liberty of the children of God. Your Father's purposes for you, Christian, are not confined to this world. His purposes for you won't be completed until the next world, the next life. Here's the last implication from Romans 8. If you are a child of God, then you will suffer with him and you will be glorified with him. That is, you will suffer with Christ and you will be glorified with Christ. Hebrews 2 tells us that his purpose is to bring many sons to glory. He's going to get us to glory. But there's going to be suffering along the way as we're led by the Spirit, as we obey our Father and represent our Father, the child of God is going to suffer. And sometimes, here's why I'm one of the reasons I'm mentioning this is because I think that sometimes it's suffering that makes us wonder if we're really children of God. When things start to really go bad in our lives, we start to think, am I really even a child of God? Is he really even looking out for me? Have I, have I upset him somehow? Was I mistaken when I thought that I belonged to him? Look at my life. Look at the losses I'm taking. Sometimes suffering can lead us to wonder whether we are his child, but that's backwards. It's so backwards. The child of God shouldn't be surprised when suffering comes. Instead, we might, we might actually it might be smarter to be uneasy and a little surprised when we don't suffer. Because that's the badge of the child of God. Whom the Lord loves, he chastens. Some people believe the opposite, that God, God's kids should never experience loss or poverty or illness. No, that's not what the Son tells us. That's not what the Son tells us at all. What he tells us, verse 17, if children then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ provided 
is that we know we suffer with him in order that we may be glorified with him. The danger that I think all of us experience is that we, we can always start falling back into the spirit of slavery. That's really implied here in Romans 8. This danger of, of falling back into a spirit of fear, living in such a way that it, it's, it's kind of a fear-driven way of relating to God. It's, it, it's because of like an imbalance in our thinking, right? We see God solely as king, as creator, as judge, and we forget that he's father. We live as if we're not his children. And so we start to lack daily intimacy with God. Here's some ways that we can know whether we're living like we're orphans or living like we've never been adopted into Christ's family. We, we lack a, a vital uh, intimacy with him, a freedom to speak with him. Ever experienced that? Here, here are some questions to help you diagnose whether you're, you are in fact living from a spirit of fear and slavery. Do you, do you tend to feel spiritually discouraged and defeated? Are you motivated more by obligation and duty rather than by love? Do you find yourself frequently comparing yourself to others, your performance to their performance? Do you lack confidence when you approach God in prayer, so much so that maybe you're not approaching him because you're afraid? Do you feel powerless to fight against sin? Do you live... Do you live as if God is perpetually disappointed with you? Do you live with this feeling that he's constantly just putting up with you? All of us experience some of this, some of the time, but is it a steady pattern in your life? Whether it is a steady pattern or whether you experience this, some of this sometimes, here's what we need. We need to be affirmed once again. We need to hear the Spirit tell us through his word again, you're not an orphan. You were on the outside, but no longer. If you've believed in Christ, you're inside. And your Father delights in you. He's not disappointed in you. He doesn't regret the adoption. He disciplines you in love, not to shame you or to harm you. He's for you. He's never against you. He's protective of you. He's jealous for you. Against anything that would draw you away from him. And he's also protective against that accuser who's always hurling doubts and accusations at you. If you are in Christ and everything Jesus has belongs to you too, he holds nothing back from you. Of course, we're not going to fully understand what that means until eternity, but we sure should try to figure out what that means, shouldn't we? So when we declare, I believe in God the Father, here's what we're doing. We are affirming that, yes, the true God is the eternal Father, but more than that, we're affirming we are his children. He's my Father through faith in Jesus. We are loved. We are cherished. We are his We're not just people that he had mercy on, who he now tolerates. 
No, he loves us and he likes us. When together we affirm these words, we're affirming his identity, but we're also affirming our identity in Christ, the Son. And we need to say this often. It's one of the reasons that we're going back to the Apostles' Creed. We, we need to say it because we so often don't believe it, at least not functionally. We don't live out all the time. We don't live out that status as sons or daughters. Years ago, I was praying with someone who, who made an observation. He said, I noticed that whenever you pray, this was a few years ago, but he says, you know, I noticed that whenever you pray, you keep calling God Lord. You keep calling God Lord. You never call him Father. And I said, well, he is Lord. And I said, he said, I did not say he's not Lord. I'm just saying that seems to be the word he used to address him all the time. Just think about it. And I did think about it. <laughs> and I began to think that this revealed something about me, at least in that season, an imbalance in how I viewed God, that I was seeing him as Lord, but I was not seeing him as Father, when we do functionally and consistently see God as Father, what we will experience is intimacy with God, a freedom to speak to Him and hear from Him. You will experience a sense of forgiveness and freedom from guilt and condemnation. You will experience more contentment and happiness in Christ. Here's one of the things that happens. The more we live functionally as his children, we'll feel more freedom to admit our faults and our failures and our weaknesses, our sins. And at the same time, we'll have increased victory over sin. So you see what that means? Taken together? It's like the more that we live as God's children, affirming and, and, and seeking to live out that reality, we will be less comfortable committing sin but we'll be more comfortable owning up to our sin. <laughs> we'll live in deep reliance on his spirit. Now here's the kicker as we end. As if it couldn't get any better that we get to be children of God through faith in Jesus. This creed also tells us that he is not just God the Father, but he is God the Father Almighty. Almighty. I remember being in elementary school and kids would sometimes uh, brag about their dads or even argue about their dads. Like, my dad could beat up your dad. I'm like, no, my dad would kill your dad, that sort of thing. Or, or some, well, I remember one kid in particular, he was always telling us, one week he'd tell us that his dad was an astronaut and worked for NASA, and then another week he's like, my dad plays for New York Yankees. And we were all so impressed until we realized he was constantly lying. He would lie about everything. The scriptures come to us and tell us your father is not just stronger than or more impressive than other fathers. He is almighty. In fact, he is the almighty. That means he doesn't, he doesn't just want what is eternally best for his children. He has the power to make it happen for all of us. The word almighty all-encompassing. It doesn't just mean he's strong. It encompasses his omniscience. He knows everything. His omnipresence. He is everywhere, occupies every space in his created world, and he's omnipotent. He has the power to do anything that he pleases, Psalm 135 tells us. So I want us to look at one more verse before we close. Ephesians chapter 1, verse 11, which tells us this. In him, that is, in Christ, we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works, look at it, 
all things according to the counsel of His will. One of the things I love about this verse is that it ties together the fatherhood of God and the power of God. Just like the first line of the creed. He's the almighty father. Look what it says here. He, it's because he's father that, that we get an inheritance. In fact, verse 11 says, we've obtained an inheritance, like past tense. We've received it. But we really haven't received it yet, have we? Not really. First Peter says that inheritance is being guarded for us in heaven for a future date. But Ephesians 1 says we've already obtained it. Past tense. Because it's as good as done. It's so certain. It's so real. It's so set. It's as if it already happened. And the only reason our Father can promise like that, with that level of certainty, is because He's the Almighty Father. You can try to leave an inheritance for your children. You can plan for it. But there's no guarantee that you'll be able to. Unexpected expenses may come. You may take some bad losses on some investments. There may be some shady family members who, <laughs> behind the scenes. All of that can change your plans. Only the Father Almighty can say, it is yours and it's done. The inheritance, you've already obtained it. Because this Father, look at the end of verse 11, He works all things according to the counsel of His will all things. And that's not just about you. That means he has the authority and the power to do everything that he pleases. And what he pleases is always good. He has the power to make all things right. The power to accomplish perfect justice in this world. He is God the Father, the Almighty. And so I want to leave you with a question We all worship gods. Who do you believe in and worship? Who do you believe in and worship? Because all other gods are going to disappoint. More than that, you know, false gods don't just disappoint. They, they will destroy you. The sorrows of those who chase after other gods will multiply, Psalm 16 says. The sorrows of those who run after other gods shall multiply. In this life, those sorrows multiply, and then eternity, they culminate in the ultimate sorrow, hell itself, apart from the Father. Can you say, I'm a child of God? Can you say, I'm a child of God? There's a sense in which God is the father of all creation. He made us, so yes, he's our father in that sense. I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about this, this personal, most more profound sense. Is he your adopted father? Through faith in Jesus. Can you say, I know I'm a child of God? Can you say, he's my father, my love, and I trust. I'm not afraid of him. Can you say, I'm an heir of God with Christ? Can you say this, if I suffer with him, I know that I will be glorified with him. God is still adopting. He's still inviting. He welcomes you to believe, to 
to come home and be his son, to be his daughter. I invite you to pray with me. Our Father, we, we dare to call you Abba Father because of the new birth and because of our adoption in Christ. Give us grace to live as obedient children who love you, who take pleasure in submitting to you, and who know, who know that we never have to fall back to a spirit of fear and slavery, but we can live in the full joy of knowing that God, the Father, is our Father. Amen.